Welcome back to Remember What's Next, Season 2, with author, rabbi, Israeli tour guide, and historian Ken Spiro, and myself, JFI director and educator Ellie Bass. This is a show where we look to the past in order to understand the present and plan for a better future. And this season, we're touring Israel and learning about each place and its part in our history and our lives as a Jewish people today. Okay, let's do this. Excellent. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. That's so cool. One day I hope to celebrate my birthday in Israel. That would be pretty awesome. Absolutely. Nothing like a birthday in Israel, especially spend it guiding. Where did you take people today? I was at mostly I was in Gush Etzion and Herodium. Supposed to go to uh actually Hevron, but we just, I decided that discretion is the better part of valor, given how uppity our cousins have been of late, unfortunately. Yeah. So can you give me a, a, is there an on one foot you can give us in terms of how things are feeling there? What's going on? Yeah. It seems that, it seems that the Daesh, ISIS, whatever you call them, has been influencing people. Uh, There's been an uptick in just of late in general and stabbings and things like that. And uh, the last couple of days we've had three attacks already but serious well-armed terrorists in major urban centers like Hadera and B'nai Brak, just shooting people in cold blood on the streets kind of scary and Ramadan is coming up actually on uh, Rosh Chodesh right. or, you know Saturday is the new Jewish month and the new because Muslims use the same lunar calendar yeah so uh, they tend to get very passionate on Ramadan also I think mm. fasting for 30 days makes them irritable Right. Everyone's uh, hangry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, there they, definitely is a lot of a lot of passions, a lot of stuff related to Jerusalem. A lot of a lot of Muslims like to come into the Jerusalem to go to the Temple Mount on Ramadan. So it's a it's and unfortunately it's corresponding with the the you know the Pesach. It's gonna be at the exact same time. So that's always a, a, a perfect storm for for right. pension and problems. Nothing that Israel's done is 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 the cause of the problem it's just another excuse to right. unfortunately build jews is this the first time isis has been involved in these types of things i've never uh, heard uh, of uh, isis yeah, link any of those things before i don't remember also ever hearing i'm not sure it's the first time but they've been taking responsibility joyfully uh, even it's even been condemned by the palestinian authority it's pretty pretty cold but they're doing wow. they're shooting people with assault rifles so uh yeah, yeah. Huh. Yep. That is so we an, uh, that is a weird and and unsettling development to say the least. Yeah. So we Hebron is uh, we decided I, Hebron is always a hotbed of Hamas actually. Right. Maybe better to skip Hebron. Got it. Not that Gush Etzion is so quiet either, but Herodium, by the way, is developed. They've done a lot of work on it. One thing good about COVID is all the archaeological sites and museums have invested massive amount of money. So. You haven't been to Israel in a while. Wow. You come back now. All the sites are looking good. That's looking so cool. Dramatically improved. <laughs> oh, uh, now, instead of looking like 3,000 years old, it only looks 1,000 years old. <laughs> I'm looking newer. It's just they put in, and they put in, they put in, they put in really cool. Uh, they fixed, they, they've added a lot to the site. A lot of things that were not accessible for are now accessible. And they put in really good you know, movies and interactive Oh, wow. Stuff. That's cool. A much better the, experience. The Ukrainian awesome. war has a play on this too, because we see that ISIS is, are in, is in Syria and Egypt, in the West Sinai, in the Sinai. So ISIS and Russia is beeping up their, uh, guarding the Golan Heights. So uh, is that uh, one reason why ISIS is getting more involved? I'm not sure exactly what you were staying there, to be honest. I wasn't sure what you were talking about. ISIS bases are either in uh, Syria or in uh, in the uh, or Sinai, and I keep reading the news that uh, that the Russians are more they're they're flying over the the no the buffer line in Syria. I was just wondering, maybe that's why ISIS is. Uh, attacking more in Israel. I don't, I don't think it's anything to do with Russia or anything like that. I think it's just ISIS looking for targets and Ramadan's always a good time to go 
do wild stuff. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see. Hopefully it'll quiet down, but uh, it could well get worse. Uh, the police, a lot of police running around. Yeah. Very beefed up presence. Got it. We'll, we'll hope okay. that everyone stays safe. God willing, right? We'll learn. We'll dive in. We'll keep everyone in mind that there should just be peace and safety. Um, okay. One thing to mention, Ken, with your new microphone, uh, mm -hmm. the with your new microphone, the further away you go from it, the less we can hear you. This microphone that you're using now, it seems okay. to you to be um, a little bit closer to it. So just keeping that in mind. Okay. Awesome. Okay. I mean, if I was in my face, isn't like the eyes over here and. <laughs> <laughs> Also, maybe turn the volume up. I don't even have to tell me. Has it done? It's actually perfect now, the way that it is. So we're good. Okay, good, good. I just noticed at times when if you lean away, then it does. It doesn't track your voice in the in the same way as before. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So um, let's just jump in. Welcome back, everyone, to the remembered. Uh, remember what's next podcast with Rabbi Ken Spiro. Um, it's a special day because it's uh, it's Ken's birthday. So may this be your best year yet. Amen. And, um, you know, it was uh, all cards on the table. It was Ken's, you know, pick to choose our topic for today, right? Because the birthday boy always gets what they want. So what are we going to talk about today? I wanted to talk about a topic that I talk about a lot, which I think is uh, very much a central theme in Judaism, but also impacts the world. I'm, there's a kind of fundamental belief that because we have a central role to play, that issues that are within the Jewish people kind of reverberate throughout the world. And if we're out of kilter, the world's going to be out of kilter also. So mm -hmm. it's a topic that I've been speaking about a lot, which is, you know, how to be about balance in Judaism. I mean, the more maybe official name of the topic is kind of universalism versus particularism. But really, it relates to, you know, Jewish identity and our role vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. Like, who are we? Particularist in terms of preservation of our identity and inwardly focused or outwardly focused towards the world. And uh, it's a topic that I think much of the Jewish world doesn't understand and really needs to work on because it's behind a lot of the friction and tension within the Jewish world and definitely with, behind almost all the big tension that's in the Western world today, for sure, and not just the Western world, the whole world. I think, I think, you know, just to say, even from a, you know, a healing perspective or a coaching perspective, where I come from, like, people don't know how to do that even with themselves, right? Like, how much should the focus be on just dealing with myself and healing myself and making sure, making sure I'm okay? And how much should I be out there in the world helping other people doing other things? Like, where's I think we're always trying to understand that correct boundary, whether it's as parents, like with our kids, like you put your mask on yourself first before you give it to your kid if you're on a plane. But I think within, you know, relationships, within families, within people, that question is one of the essential questions of life to understand how do we, where do we put the boundaries? How do we know how much to do and how much not to do? And where to put our foot down and and how what's our responsibility which i think is more what you're saying in terms of jewishly right. we would say what's our responsibility and uh, you know it's interesting the perkia both the ethics of the fathers which is in the mishnah you know to ask that question the famous you know you know if if i am not for myself who will be for me the kishani me mani you know if which they translate sort of loosely and if i have only for myself what am i if i'm only focused on myself if not now when Right. So it's kind of a fundamental issue, but it's really the issue that divides the world. And it's mm -hmm. kind of the issue that divides the Jewish people. You know, humanity, if you study the history of humanity in terms of values and ideas, it, 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 it's a roller coaster ride. It's sort of it's, sometimes it goes to extreme. Sometimes it's yeah. a little more stable. Uh, but we see the last, you know, history has to be appreciated over a span of even centuries to see the trends and patterns. The problem with being in the middle of something you don't have that distance and perspective to appreciate how things are changing and where they're necessarily going. Yeah. But if you look back over the last, you know, a few hundred years of the history of the world, the world has gone from, let's say, a very particularist kind of worldview, which is uh, focusing on your own nationalist kind of identity. In medieval Europe, it was basically the, 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 the us is like the Christian world versus the other. Um, when, we get to, when we get to the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, 
it becomes much more universalistic, especially in the Enlightenment. The whole focus was, you know, if you look at the, to the words of, uh, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the, the German poet Schiller put words to it. And it has, it's the most universalistic song. You know, Alde mentioned Wörterbrüder, all men are brothers. This idea, the French Revolution, mm. liberty, equality, fraternity, rather than being focused on our tribalism or nationalism, we need to sort of inclusively, we are the world kind of worldview. Right, like the I'm not okay if you're not okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But looking ourselves as being part of the brotherhood of, you know, I know it's being gender specific, but the brotherhood of man, as they say, as opposed to I'm French, I'm German. The problem is, and you, you work with counseling, that having a sense of self and part of and belonging is like a, is a fundamental part of just like human right. identity and stability. So when, when, when we go to like kind of groupthink, People and people sort of like, sort of like, negate their individuality or, or, or you know, the uniqueness. It's it can be very destructive. The opposite can be very destructive too. When humanity has focused on hyper, you know, identity, I am this group and the other, it's me and the other. Then yeah. that could lead to a lot of friction and tension. And the other thing could also be a problem. So when Europe moved into like, especially you see this in the you know the 18th, 19th centuries, the height mm -hmm. of the Enlightenment you know the world moves to this kind of really universalistic worldview and, and principles and there's principles that are universal of science and and sort of basic ideas that encompass all of humanity that can be an umbrella the big tent so to speak for all of humanity but what happens if you look what ha after people because people need to feel a sense of belonging and specialness yeah um, on a collective level so the nationalism comes out always you know and, and we, we go from that to to world war one when the world becomes hyper-nationalistic and it's all about my, my, my country, you know, right or wrong. <laughs> and that leads to World War II. So you have hyper, you know, and Nazism was a kind of unique form of socialistic nationalism, which was really toxic, but it was all about race and the unique individualness and specialness and superiorness of one group of people over another and the right of that group to dominate and even destroy another group. So it's been like this incredible roller coaster ride. Now we fast forward to the last 50 years or so, post World War II in the 60s and what came after. And we sort of, the world kind of moved back in the West to the universalistic worldview again. It's mm. been a very, very, very powerful pull for people. You know, um, like I always say that my, the, the best worst song ever written, Ellie, I would say is John Lennon's Imagine. Okay. You know, in what the way? words, because it says, you know, Imagine all the people living for nothing to live for, die for the nothing live or die for. Imagine no, there's religion, no religion, no heaven or hell above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You know, okay, okay, definitely being in the present is a great thing. It's a great, great trait to inculcate in anyone's personality to be. But the notion that just get rid of all the differences. Just right. Get, religion, religion is a divisive force. Uh, you know ideas that we want to sacrifice for are not good. Let's just like all, you know, the 60s was like free love. Let's just all love each other. Mm -hmm. No boundaries. It sounds nice, <laughs> it sounds nice but it doesn't work. It, right. just, it just goes against human nature. And then people go back the other way. And you have, and, and it's not just the whole world's been doing it. The whole world hasn't been doing this. The West has been doing this. Mm. Parts of the world are extremely particularistic. You know, like the, the, the West has been very open. The Islamic world in general is very particularistic. They have a very, you know, clear worldview that they're that the, the world's supposed to follow a certain pattern that's based on, you know, rules that came from you know Allah through Muhammad, and there's a deterministic worldview. And when a particularistic people who believes in their unique destiny and the whole world is supposed to move towards them, collides with a Europe that has lost that idea. You know, I always say like a thousand years ago, in the Crusades, you had you know, fanatical Christians screaming this vault, which is God wills it. And you had Muslims screaming, Allahu Akbar, you know? So these are two incredibly particularistic groups who both believed that they were right mm -hmm. in an extreme and led to a massive confrontation, which is reverberated throughout history. You know, Islamic Christianity conflict has been going on since the foundation of Islam. But now you have a Europe, which is like, no, we've kind of given up our nationalism is evil. One of the backlashes of, of you know, the World War II and the Holocaust. Right. Right. Look at how toxic nationalism is. We got to stop all that stuff. So, uh, and, but, but now like you have 
like very universalistic Muslim, very, very particularistic Muslim Islamic world interacting with a very universalistic Christian world that's lost its will to preserve its unique identity. And it's sort of like the suicide of your national identity. You're going to be overwhelmed by other people who don't feel the same way as you. Right. So, so it's out of balance. So where but, does Judaism sit then? Does Judaism identify more with a particular, with a particular worldview? Are we more particularistic or are we more on the other side of universalism? Because I could definitely look into Judaism and see both. So where do we, where do we lie on that sliding scale? But Judaism is exactly both. I say Jews are the most particularist universalists. <laughs> of course we are. Everything. Well, yeah, exactly. Nothing in Judaism is simple. Right. We don't have a Luther count or a solo count. We have both. We know nothing is easy because on one hand, uh, and because, you know, it's, it's a system that comes from God. It's a perfectly balanced system. Uh, okay. Because you have to preserve your, you know, on a, I'm not talking about a personal psychological level, but on a level as a people, you need to preserve your own unique identity. And there's nothing evil about that, by the way. Having, believing that you have, you know, uniqueness to your culture is not evil. It's only when you think that your culture is superior and you have a right to force it on other people or deny them the right to their culture or their right. unique identity that it gets toxic and dangerous. But the notion, I always say, if the world were, if everyone looked, dressed, and acted the same, the world would be a really boring place. The beauty mm. of, of humanity is the differences. Um, we got to respect them. It's not better or worse. It's just different. And right now, that's a toxic word today, different. Whenever I say it, I get nervous around people because they're going to jump on me. Um, but Judaism is really a combination of both. And the system that was designed is designed to preserve both. On one hand, um, the, you know, there's, you can divide commandments up into what are called chukim and mishpatim. Uh, mm -hmm. Chukim are generally the laws of kashrut, shabbat. They're generally the things that are less clear as to why they're there. You know, they're, they're, their meaning is more hidden in spirituality, the impact of food on your body and your soul, the observance of shabbat. These are not things that are, you know, really obvious as to what they give you. Okay, you are what you eat. You know, maybe taking a day off to, of, of work is, is healthy for your soul and your, and your physical body. But prayer, all those things fall into the area of hukim. Mishpatim are the ben adam l'chavero laws, the, the laws of hum, between human being and human being, laws of property, ownership, marriage, divorce, all of these things that any society needs to have cohesiveness and not have anarchy. Hmm. Judaism has a combination of both of those within Jewish worldview. And it's, it, it creates a, a really, if it's done correctly, it creates a really nice balance. Because on one hand, you're supposed to focus, we Jews, in terms of our historic mission from the very beginning from Abraham, uh, you know, you think of these hukim, one of the side benefits of them is they, does, they, cre they create barriers between Jews and non-Jews. Right. In terms of when you can't eat the same food as everyone else, when you can't drink their wine, when you can't marry their women and the women marry their, their men, whatever, vice versa, it sets up. When you're supposed to even dress, look, and act differently, it creates a separation that is Judaism believes is supposed to exist. We're supposed to preserve our unique identity and our unique mission in the world. But on the other hand, we're supposed to remember that we're part of a larger world. Judaism is a holistic system that not only has laws that deal with internal Jewish world, but how you deal with the outside world. So there's, we have to remember we have a responsibility. It's not just about preserving ourselves. We have to always remember we have a unique responsibility to, to be a role model for the human race. And that involves. So what does that mean, Jewishly? When we say, okay, so part of our then universalistic viewpoint is we have a part to play. Um, we have a responsibility. So what does that look like Jewishly? Because we certainly, as you said, we're not trying to make everyone Jewish. We're not saying this is this way is the only way. So what does that look like in the world? Right. So it's a great question because the the hukim part are not for non they're not for non-Jews. They have no obligation to keep kosher, to keep Shabbat. And non-Jews not even, you know, non-Jews not even allowed to keep Shabbat. You know, someone who is is converting has to, even when they're really ready to go, and they have to still like flip the light switch on during Shabbat because it's something specifically given to the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. So it's not about us proactively going out and necessarily changing the world. It's about us inspiring the world. The fact that Jews have never viewed uh, conquest, physical conquest of the world, as a positive thing, and the fact that the fact that excuse me a second, oh my God, I'm getting a call from my parents in the middle of all of this, which I cannot take. 
the fact that uh, we also don't actively look for conversions shows that we're not trying to export our, our worldview. What we're trying to do is, is live and act in a way that people look at how we function because we have a system, Judaism has, what Judaism does believe in it, there's, there's Judaism light, which is these seven Noahide laws. Um, that are for the all of humanity that the whole world should adopt. I, you know, it's it's a recognition of one God, a recognition of an absolute standard of morality, setting up of a judicial system, not having cruelty to animals. It's basic boundaries that society needs to need. Which, if you look at them, are actually a mini version of Judaism on a lighter level, without a lot less stringencies that are designed right. to create a healthy relationship spiritually and a healthy relationship between us and our fellow human beings, and a healthy relationship with our environment. That's interesting because so, I never thought of Judaism being something that models boundaries. You know, yeah, it's a, it is interesting in that way. I mean, certainly because we make so many jokes about like the lack of boundaries sometimes in our Jewish like culture and relationships. But certainly when you say it, when you put it together like that, that, yeah, one of the things that we're modeling is there are differences between things. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which is something that's very lacking in, in the world today in many areas. We don't want to go into details on that because I think we all figure out what they are, but the blurring of all of this, the but really what Judaism is ultimately about on the deepest possible level is connecting humanity to truth and reality. That's what God is by definition. We say Hashem Elokechem Emet. We're supposed to be the conduit so that people are supposed to come to us and look to us for guidance. You know, we're not going to rule them and tell them how to live, but they should want to learn you know, I always, I always jokingly say, um, you know, there's a famous quote that Im imitation is the highest form of flattery. It's a famous quote. I always say that's the shortest class you ever got in Christianity and Islam. Because had we not created a, a kind of a balanced lifestyle that had ideas of value of life, social responsibility, a positive interaction with spirituality that wasn't the cynical, if you look at polytheism and paganistic worldview of how the gods interact with human beings, it's extremely negative and unempowering. Mm -hmm. um, but to be able to create a balanced world within ourselves in terms of our relationship with God as a loving being that wants to have a relationship with us, cares about humanity, is directing the world, that, that, that history is a, determined, is a determined process. It's a controlled process leading to a destination and to, and to have understand how to run society correctly, what are our responsibilities towards the world, you know, how do we take care of the world. All these things, when we do it, people want to learn from us. So it's just right. by us being balanced, we create sort of the focus that the world could look at because otherwise, you know, you know, they, that is that it's that quote attributed to Einstein that he never said, but he said the definition of insanity is, is trying the same experiment over. I'm going to drop this thousand times and maybe eventually it'll fly up. It's never going to work that way. So, you know, if, 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 if something, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you have a system that works and people seem to have their act together, then other people who are healthy are going to look at them and say, what are they doing right? And how can we, follow them and imitate it. And then our job would be to show them, okay, as non-Jews, you don't have an obligation to do all things we do, but here's a couple of like really basic things that you can do and a couple of basic values that you can have and a, and a, and a really fundamental reality you need to accept. And if you follow that, then the whole world will be basically in line doing the right thing because I know it sounds simplistic, but what keeps the world from living in peace and, and, and brotherhood? Right. Neighborhood you want to live in is the fact that we're not on different wavelengths. People have different end games, you know. And so, what are the examples if we had to look back into Jewish history? Um, just because that's part of what how we're doing this is where can we have examples of where things were out of balance, either too universalistic or too particularistic? Can we think of some historical examples of that of the Jewish people? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, you know, it, it's interesting just to, to, to really rewind to the beginning. People ask me, you know, when was the ideal period of time in Jewish history? You know, it's really King Solomon. King Solomon, think about it. He had, okay, we had a little mini Jewish empire. We weren't conquering the world, but we had peace and 40 years of peace and prosperity. And it says all the nations of the world came to learn from him. And that's why he, by the way, the mistake he made was he said he married like a lot of women. It, 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 it had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's a scary thought. He had 700 mothers-in-law. It was a very you know, good shape. Very scary thought. <laughs> I always jokingly say he died at 52 because one day 200 of them went shoe shopping. You know, but, but he was the reason, without going into the whole discussion, in my mind, the reason why he married so many women, because the person of the, the, the reason for marriage amongst royalty and nobility has always been to cement alliances. He was trying to, really jumpstart the redemption by making political alliances with all the kings of the world. And that way, 
I can influence them a lot quicker. If I'm married to all the, you know, the empires and kings and king, you know, that'll be like, we'll, we'll bring the redemption. We have the temple. We got everything's doing great. Right. It's like basically merging with every single company of existence. So he, but he overstepped. It didn't work. It failed. Um, And the Jewish people went into really from beginning from that period of time onward and really for the next, you know, it's like two and a half thousand years or more, we went into more and more of a reactive mode because we lost the initiative. We became less for and more, not against, but just like other threats, external physical threats. We lost the ability to really like export our, our product line. When you, if you fast forward to the Roman Empire, even though now we're scattered around the world and under a lot of pressures, a lot of divisiveness in the world, nonetheless, the fact that in a very cynical, violent world, which was the Roman Empire, which had beautiful buildings and lovely roads and great you know, public work projects, but a world that was very, very callous in terms of you know, value of life, you know, that the greatest empire and the technologically and culturally most advanced country, number one form of sporting, sporting entertainment is watching people kill each other. And you had a world full of infanticide and, and illiteracy and poverty and lack of social responsibility. It was a very callous, brutal world. In that world, even though we Jews were largely on the defensive, were occupied by Rome, a good chunk of the Jews lived outside of Israel. Many of the institutions and normalcy of Judaism had already been lost by then. We nonetheless maintained a level of, of cohesive, positive, you know, healthy community that the rest of the world did not have. And that, by the way, is the backstory to the founding of Christianity, where you had, you know, Romans who were, had a lot of material comfort and power, but were spiritually right. searching and feeling that they're just like the West today, that, you know, my family stinks, my kids don't respect, respect me, the culture is getting decadent, no one wants to work or fight anymore, the empire is slowly rotting from within, it's exactly what, nothing new under the sun, what's mm-hmm. going on in the West today. So people looked and said, hey, you know, these Jews, even though they're really weird and strange and they eat differently, they don't marry us, they don't worship our gods like everyone else in the world, they still have higher rates of literacy than anyone else. They have social welfare infrastructure. They have a loving God, not a cynical one who's always like, you know, lecherous, deb- debauchery and whatever's going up there in the heavens with the pantheon of gods. You know, they have all kinds of things that well, they have a day off. Wow. That they like, they, re- they rejuvenate, you know, that mm. and, and early Christian writers, even Roman writers like um, uh, Vero, I think it's Roman. He says that the customs of the cursed people have become so prevalent that the vanquished have given their laws to the victors. That a lot of Romans, especially upper class Romans, were like becoming Jewish groupies and going to the Kabbalah Center back then. <laughs> is that Friday true though? Meals. Like how yes, many Romans wanted to be true. like Jews? That's so there fascinating. Was a tremendous, there was a tremendous draw. That now what repelled them, the you know, that you know, that what repelled Romans from why did they all if they if if the old time religion of Rome wasn't giving what they wanted, and they were spiritually searching and materialistically materialistically comfortable yet feeling empty and, 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 and really the, the Roman writers talk about how neurotic and scared everyone was running around Rome. It's like fear everywhere of uncertainty mm. of what's going to be. And the Jews seem to have a much better working model of stability in every way and a better lifestyle and healthier society and a better spiritual life. So why didn't they become Jewish? Because of the partic- particularistic side, hmm. which was these, first of all, Jews were a nation. We were the most rebellious nation in the Roman empire. Um, we rebelled three times in 70 years. Uh, and also there was a lot of restrictions that Judaism were Romans were not into. They liked the kosher stuff. They didn't like all the prohibitions and the sexual restrictions. Right. And the national and the close association of religion and nationalism. That's where Christianity was able to capitalize. Um, not necessarily successfully creating a much better world, but at least able to capitalize on the, their market share of people who were leaving paganism and wanted a watered down version of Judaism, which is really what Christianity was. It was Judaism light where, you got the nice beliefs without all of the restrictions. It was a rep- or without all the responsibilities. Repl- yeah, replacing all the deeds and actions with what you believed. Right. Which, by the way, psychologically doesn't really work. You got to have certain basic actions and the BF Skinner model of behavioral modification. Um, but there's a great example of, of, of clearly we had our act together in a way because we certainly weren't the most liked people on the planet Earth. We were viewed as the weirdest, strangest people right. in the Roman Empire, and we, we suffered amongst all these pagan cultures, yet despite, the, despite that level of friction and conflict, we still presented a positive enough image to the world that they were, in a, to a certain level, following after us. If we had maybe better marketing and been, had our act together more at that time, maybe we would have been able to write the story in a different way and wean the world off of paganism and bring them all to 
you know, Judaism light, which is the seven Noahide laws, but it didn't work that way. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it goes downhill from there because then we get offshoot faiths, Christianity and Islam, which are basically telling us, you know, for 2000 years, the world is telling us Jews, you know, you're crazy and you're wrong. And then after telling us we're crazy and wrong for 2000 years, first comes Christianity and Islam, which are basically saying, you know, you're basically right, but we replaced you. Right. <laughs> you were right about some things. <laughs> Just not about everything. Right. But so I also do mom, think that's interesting because, you know, we also don't proselytize. So even if we thought it was nice that the Romans wanted to participate in some way, we're not actively trying to make people Jewish. We're also, you know, in the most universalistic way saying everybody has their own path, their own way, which is really interesting. Like we're here to model, but you don't have to be us in order to exactly. be part of it exactly eat your drink your wine eat your food but change john lennon's song imagine all the people living under a relationship with the one infinite god who gives one set of rules mm. and the universal spirituality for all of humanity you you can do a lot of the same stuff you were doing before but once you have that that overarching like like dome of one god and absolute standard of values that's the arbiter for everything the world is doing then suddenly the world is really on the same wavelength and suddenly the world is looking at the Jews and saying, okay, I don't have to eat the kosher food necessarily, although I think a lot of them like it. <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they say, well, what, in this situation, what are we supposed to do? What's the correct way to behave? Mm-hmm. You guys have, your guys are the connector. You're like the people who are supposed to be the mouthpiece for the, for the infinite and tell us what to do as a people and as a world. And then we'll create that balance again so we don't have to like try different things and see, will this work and that work? What form of government is going to work? What kind of rules do we have to have? And the beauty of Judaism is because it's so, it's so, you know, holistically covers everything. There's nothing out of its purview. There's no moral issue that the world is facing today that Judaism doesn't know how to deal with. So, you know, as, as terms of what kind of government, right to life, abortion, there's nothing outside that law. And, and again, some of these laws are not relevant to the rest of the world, the hukim, but the mishpatim are, are universal ideas that all humanity right. needs to have, unless you have an absolute God-given standard that's outside of, human desire or ability to play around with it because what could be fashionable now could be very unfashionable later like bell bottoms are cool now and now it's straight leg little tight pants same thing with morality you know you have you have these tremendous vacillations back and forth if you don't have that anchor that's rooting everyone in one absolute standard and that's what we're supposed to bring to the world but to be able to continually do that we have to preserve our our uniqueness because otherwise we get sucked up into the, the bigger, the, you know, the, the world and wanting to join. And that's what happens. You know, that's the, you fast forward to modern times. You go back to what I was talking about at the beginning with the enlightenment, you know, Jews throughout the, for, for a period of over millennia in Europe were literally, were very separate people. We were literally physically ghettoized, economically, mm-hmm. physically marginalized. We generally chose to, the non-Jewish world wasn't attractive. And why would you want to be like some, you know, illiterate peasant in some European country who's living, you know, very low level, on every level, like not, 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 not aiming very high in life and not living very well, not a big attraction. But once Europe, especially Western Europe, industrializes and modernizes and universalizes and opens its doors and even invites Jews in, starting with the French Revolution, you know, in 1791, when Jews are finally, first time in European history, given rights as citizens, Jews who had suffered so much at the hands of non-Jews because we were so particularistic and different, we run to embrace that often, especially in Western Europe, often at the expense of the, the particularistic side of our, our existence, meaning we, we Jews loved the value that figuring this is the safest thing. If we, have a, if we have one world, if we're living in a world where we're the other and everyone's looking at us because they're very particularistic and we're the other outside their group, but right. now they're right. welcoming us as brothers and sisters, as fellow human beings. Right. It seems like it's a great idea. It's great. You know, and Short term, by the way, it led to a tr- tremendous drop off in open anti-Semitism in Western Europe. But because not in human nature to stay that way and people want to feel particularistic and because we're not allowed to just be loved to death by the non-Jewish world, which is what would have happened by any normal rules of history. Mm. You know, if the non-Jews really wanted to get rid of us, they would stop picking on us. They would just be nice to us. We, we don't know how to deal with that as well. We don't. <laughs> And what about within the Jewish people themselves? Like, it seems like there's a lot of diversity in terms of 
our own thinking within Judaism, what's the right amount of particularism and what's the right amount exactly. of universality. Exactly. That's the perfect, that's the perfect question for the next, what happens next? Because what happens next is a bunch of Jews basically decide we need to uh, either completely reject and leave behind our Judaism or make a new version of our Judaism that allows us to engage in a more universalistic way with larger culture and remove those barriers that are creating blocks, like looking, dressing, eating, acting differently than non-Jews is going to create separateness and that's going to create, and then they become particularistic and they're going to look at us as different and then they're going to want to kill us again. So we just become like them. The problem is becoming like them means it leads to assimilation because those particularistic side of Judaism is designed to keep us separate. The reform movement, by the way, is a classic example of this. They literally, it starts in Hamburg in Germany in 1811. And they basically say that, you know, those, I, I mean, if I have a whole class, I, say, I read the quotes, the reform movement being German, they kept minutes of all their meetings. And they basically say that all of this ritual that we used to keep is from a period of time that's irrelevant today. And this notion of our particularistic national identity of Judaism, we're not a nation, we're a religious community. And in Germany, they said, we're, we're, not, we're not Jews, we're Germans of the Mosaic persuasion. You have Catholic Germans, Protestant Germans, and and, and Jewish Germans, but we're Germans first. And they give up any, they drop the nationalist component. We're not going back to Israel. Reform movement was very anti-Zionist originally because that was very nationalistic and particularistic. And they drop the observance side of it. We're, we're giving up Kashrut and Shabbat, or you know, we're gonna, if we're gonna have Shabbat, we're gonna keep it in a watered down way and we're gonna move it to Sunday, by the way. We have an organ in the, in the synagogue. We have to be like the larger world. So here's, Jews, rather than bringing the world into the universal tent of Jewish worldview, is the Jews throwing their Judaism off and running the other way. And, and some Jews went even further and just dumped and just got into what they thought was what Judaism was really about, which continues until today, which is tikkun olam and social justice. And that's the number one point of identity. Right, which no one can, no one's arguing is a bad thing. It's, yeah, it, so it's, it's part, part of, of the Judaism. absolute beauty of Judaism is that we feel a responsibility for the rest of the world, not just ourselves. But, but, it, but, but when it becomes, it becomes by itself almost a separate religion and mm -hmm. is outside the tent of Judaism and outside the moral direction and confines of halakha, it takes on a life of its own, yet even creates movements and directions that are antithetical to what Judaism would say. So what you have now is a Jewish world. You fast forward to 2022. Meanwhile, by the way, because of those external threats, because what happens during this period of time in the Enlightenment is the enemy switches from a physical threat, the pogroms, the blood libels, you know, that kind of stuff, to now a spiritual threat. The enemy is no longer without the non-Jew trying to kill us. He's still out there, by the way. He's still trying to kill us. We see that all the time. But back then it was viewed as, no, that's an enlightened world. We don't have pogroms anymore in Western Europe. The enemy now is the, Jew who's left Judaism behind, who's become so universalistic, he's become a communist, a Bundist, he's become a reform guy, he's become a secular Zionist. And therefore, the, the, that part of the Jewish world, which maintained its religious observance, becomes even more particularistic and more hyper-focused on this stuff, because that's the stuff that separates and creates the barriers. So it's, the way I describe it is the walls of the ghettos come down, and we made our own walls. But they're not physical walls. They're walls of separation and stringencies that we keep that are designed to keep us further and further away from the, the secular world, that dangerous outside world, which is so alluring to us, which is true. It is very. Got it. So each piece is polarizing, right? Exactly. So each piece, you're, some people are becoming extremely particularistic and some people are becoming extremely universalistic and both, which means we're pulling away from each other rather than coming yeah. together. Exactly. And neither is balanced, by the way. Right. On one hand, in, in terms of the religious world, especially the more orthodox the world gets, the more particularistic it gets. The dress gets more distinctive. The stringencies in keeping kosher, the separation of neighborhoods. You have little shtetls, even in America, like you can go to, you know, New Square or, you know, you know, Kiryasioil, where the people, I, people they, they speak English like they just got off the boat from Poland 100 years ago. They really, English is a second language. They speak Yiddish. They run a preserve to the maximum, and it's very fear. It's often very fear-based. It's very reactive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the other part of the world is not so fear-based. It's totally embracing everything. But because it's so open to everything, it, it, it leads to you know massive assimilation, intermarriage, and a, and, a, and a lack of desire to preserve preserve that unique Jewish identity, believing that really Judaism isn't about preserving any unique identity. It's a, it's a vain, it's kind of a vague cultural thing. You know, bagels, lox, and cream cheese, and gefilte fish.
But what really Judaism is ultimately is about fixing the world, social justice. And like you said, it's definitely a part of what Judaism is about, but it has to be within that balanced holistic system. Otherwise, you get Jews for every ism but Judaism, and then you end up having no Jews at all because they opt out of Judaism. Because when Jews leave the particularism, history proves this, there's no debate on this topic. When Jews leave the particularistic side of Judaism behind, which is observance and, of course, and learning is part of that, mm-hmm. within three to five generations, they're gone. But when Jews cling more and more narrowly to Judaism, you know, it, first of all, it, it doesn't necessarily work, by the way, because you still have an attrition rate. I always say if you, if you live in a garbage room, no matter how much air freshener you spray, you're still going to stink because it's, it's, it's not a, it's also not any way you get, you never want to run a business by being reactive. You know, a good army is proactive. It's on the offensive. And a good business is trying to sell its product. Um, you know, I, I always say Coca-Cola's motto was, doesn't taste as bad as Pepsi. No one would buy it. <laughs> but their motto is right. Coke is it. It's the real thing. So it's that combination of the, you know, that's why I say we're universalistic, universalistic particularists. It's recognizing that we don't have to cut ourselves completely off from the world. It's possible to engage. If one thing the modern world has shown us, especially post-World War II, mm-hmm. You go to places like Toronto, New York, you can see, you can be engaged in the world. You can have a profession, mm-hmm. you know, you can interact with non-Jews, but you have to have a community. You have to have a Jewish life. You have to keep certain standards, but it's not a zero sum game. And that's the right. problem. The problem is, and the zero sum game is the lack of balance. So and what so, we have so, is, yeah. So does Judaism prescribe, um, uh, you know, what, how does Judaism, knowing that this is going to be potentially an issue, that we're going to either polarize one way or the other, or each group goes a separate way, are there things that are built into our system that help us bring us back to center? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, the biggest problem is lack of role models. The, mm. the, I think the number one thing we really need are people that we can look up to as Jews who are connected Jewishly, but normal and are worldly enough to be able to, you know, interact with the world on just like the world is supposed to look at us as that model of balance and not to be too open to everything and not too hyper-nationalistic and becoming racist. You know, they're looking at us to do that. And we are looking for role models. We really don't have that in the Jewish world. Few and far between mm. are the individuals that we can look at and say they seem to have it really well worked out or, or communities that do that even. And right. I, that can show us what that can look like. Right. But I, but right. I really think, but I, but I think for each group, it's a different sort of like medicine. For I would say in my experience in dealing with the religious world, especially the very ultra-Orthodox world, it's a rebranding of what Judaism is about. Because I always say when I'm talking to, I often ask audiences of, of observant Jews, I say, what's the purpose of being Jewish? And the answer is usually, number one answer is usually serve God or learn Torah and do mitzvahs. And I say that neither of those is really correct. We even have, you know, we say, serve the Lord with joy, but it's a figure of speech and not a reality because God's infinite. You don't do anything for him. Torah and mitzvahs are critical to Jewish survival, and, and, and it's the guidance system for the Jewish people individually and collectively, but there are means to an end. The purpose of being Jewish is Kiddush Hashem. It's, again, to live and act in a way that inspires other people. And it sounds like a little thing, but it's huge, because if everything you're doing as a religious Jew, you balance against how it's going to impact the people around you, my fellow Jews and the rest of the world. Right. And my motto is like the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And before I take on any stringency in my relationship with the big guy upstairs, I have to make sure it's not negatively impacting someone around me there. That is huge. That's That's interesting too to me because it makes me think like um, if you like that we're not supposed to be a doctor who doesn't practice. Right. Right. Like so there's the practice of Judaism and then there's the responsibility of Judaism. And that if you have one without the other, that seems like a very strange thing to do. Like if you're just helping people, but you have no training, but you have all this training, but you're not helping people. It's a, it's a bit of an odd balance. So that's right. interesting to think about it that way, as, like when you put it like that. It's a very good way of putting it. It's a very good way of putting it, recognizing that it's not, even outreach organizations, we're about, we want to stop intermarriage and assimilation. That is not, that is not a marketing strategy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like, don't give Hitler a posthumous victory. This is not the things you want. <clears throat> right. If, it, if it's meaningful, and, that, and that's the other side, it's showing the other 
side of the Jewish world that A, you can't represent the Jewish people till the Jewish people represent till you know what the Jewish people represent. Ignorance mm. is more dangerous to us than anti-Semitism. First, you have to understand what it means to be Jewish, understand where the source of all your incredible drive and caring comes from. And then you have to have the wisdom to know how to direct it in the right way. I always say Jews for Judaism make incredible role models for the world. So in terms of marketing it to the secular Jewish world, it's if you want to really impact the world in a positive way, you know, we got, we got the wisdom and the direction and the system that'll enable you as an individual and us collectively to really have an impact that'll truly make a difference in the world and be transformative. Hmm. So it's, it's a different sort of, and, and, but we have to also, but it's the same thing that Kiddush Hashem is the same thing. You have to market that in different language to secular Jews because secular Jews looking at religious Jews think that it's all about ritual and pots and pans. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain, there's a certain truth to the criticism. Mm-hmm. They're usually just worried about like how, you know, the milk and the meat and stuff like that. And they're not really concerned with anything else. And we're really caring right. about the world. We're representing the true spirit of Judaism. Right. So first of all, number one is the, the responsibility is first and foremost on those Jews who know the, the religious Jewish world. If they had their act together, they would, by no doubt in my mind, they would attract, if you had a, uh, an Orthodox Jewish community that was, that was cohesively had its act together and proactively doing not just uh, great chesed and caring projects within its own limited community, which is what a lot of it often is, but actually, you know, also creating that, you know, the, the vibe that impacts the world around a lot of secular Jews would go, wow, these people, they have their act together. Mm. Like, and it's not just about pots and pans. They have a community that's really making a difference in this world and not just trying to stop intermarriage and assimilation and being very inwardly focused and, right. ex- and, and, ex- and exclusive and not be inclusive because that's another big paradigm shift we have to make is the, the religious world has to recognize that like, you know, if your brother is, is, is living on the street or he's sick, he's your brother. You don't go, oh, he's not me. I don't care. And there's a lot of that going on. It's not people are, I'm not saying there's not a lot of good stuff going on too, but there's a lot of that, like I'm safe in my community. I got my kosher food, my schools, I got my religion. I got, I got the outside influence under control. Right. The other, the other 85% of the Jewish world that's been tremendous, they're, I'm responsible for them. So right, I really, which think- is, you know, which is one of the first messages we get in the text. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes, you are. Big. Exactly. Exactly. You, you are responsible. And I really think that bottom line, I don't, I don't expect a lot from, you know, a, a, a disconnected Jew. I'm not, I have a lot of expectations from them. They're like a, the Jewish laws, Tinuk Shanishba. It's like someone who is raised amongst as a halakhic status of raised, a Jew raised amongst non-Jews who doesn't know what it means to be Jewish. Most of these people, you had a period of time in Jewish history when Jews were actively opting out of Judaism, making a conscious decision that this is not for me, which, but you don't have that anymore. You have the vast majority of Jews, whether it's in Israel or in the diaspora, are basically just interested but lost and not being reached out to. And most of them have never interacted with, uh, I grew up, I never interacted with any Orthodox Jews in my entire life mm-hmm. until we had one modern Orthodox family on our street. They came in later. The kids were younger than I was. We had nothing to do with them. I had no interactions. No one ever to do anything with me until I was in my 20s. I never met, really met, I guess I met Orthodox Jews that I really identified as being Orthodox. Right. And, and uh, any of us who found Judaism, it's when we interacted and saw the beauty and the meaning of Judaism that we were attracted to it. And on a personal level, it gave us something on a personal level, but I think the real winning, the winning uh, marketing strategy is to show that not only that the system we have that's beautifully balanced between us and God gives us balance on a personal level, and a spiritual level, but it also enables us to create a uh, balance into how we deal with the rest of the world and create communities that are effective in taking care of the world. Jews by nature always do this, but it has to be balanced. You know? Right. So that to me is really the, the mission starts with those of, those of us who know, who are connected Jewishly, have an obligation to become, become balanced first and begin by first becoming balanced and recognizing responsibility to our fellow Jews because the laws of charity, and this is a form of tzedakah, mm-hmm. whether you give your time or your money or, or, or an apple to a you know, poor person on the street, it's all the same thing. You're giving something of yourself to someone else, but our first responsibility is to our immediate family and then it's to our, our fellow Jew, larger Jewish family. And then, then as when we get our act together, then we can start focusing again, like King Solomon was doing thousands of years ago, 
on creating a state and a people that is a role model because right. the world is so out of whack now more than I can ever remember in human history. The extremes are insane. Mm -hmm. It's not you know, like it's like something is rocking. It's not like the, the energy is dissipating and slowly becoming stable. It's rocking more and more out of control. Now there's a great opportunity in all of this disorder and unbalance. People are really looking. Just like they were looking in Rome 2,000 years ago, they're, they're, they're fearful. There's a lot of, there's a tremendous amount. You work with people. I think the level of anxiety in the world today between yep. COVID and inflation and political instability and the extremes that we got, the, you know, you got, you got the, this president here who's this way and then that president who's mm -hmm. that way. And then, and there's no one in the middle anymore. Yeah. No one yeah. in the middle anymore. So if we have our act together, like I said, Jews for Judaism make tremendous role models for the world. If we create a vision of what a balanced human being and a balanced society is supposed to be like, I think it would, and especially with, that's the beauty of the internet. The good side of it is you can spread stuff really fast. So uh, true. I think you, the world would, the world would come start looking at us and say, wow, show us, you know, like they did back in the Roman empire. What's your secret guys? And then we would, we would be, we would get that world to like settle down. I mean, we got our work cut out for us. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's beautiful to to hear, like, maybe what we're supposed to be role modeling is that balance, that what we're supposed to be role modeling is a center rather than extremes, because the whole right. world seems so caught up in extremes right now and that Judaism could show what it looks like to be in the world and not in the world right exactly so exactly. yeah and like a practical tool that we can all take because you know like they say trifles make perfection but perfection is no trifle doing little things makes a big difference but i mm -hmm. think the most practical tool is to be as starting with those jews who are connected jewishly and identify openly as jews to be hyper aware of our activities not paranoid oh my god but hyper aware of everything i'm going to do how does, how does it look not that how does it look because i want it to look good but right. as reb noach used to say reb, reb, reb noach weinberg when he wanted to do something that was questionable his father would say in Yiddish, God, what does God think about this? Mm. If we would ask ourselves, like first, like the Hippocratic oath, don't do harm. I want to grow spiritually and I want to take on astringency. How's it going to impact? You know, I want to, we have to be so careful that we're always growing as Jews. We're learning. We're growing in observance doesn't necessarily make, take on more stringencies. Looking more religious is not necessarily growing. It could right. be regressing actually for people. It's, it's being it's having our inside and our outside. I always people ask me this. I said, you got to be comfortable as a Jew. It doesn't mean being lazy. Comfortable means your inside and your outside match. Correct. You don't look one way because you want people to think this about you. But basically, like really being working on being really conscious of everything we're doing and how we're growing and how it's gonna and how it's gonna impact those around us. That's a little change, but if enough Jews start doing that, that is a massive paradigm shift. It's like you know, Malcolm Gladwell's the tipping point. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Ken. Thank you so much. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, Thanks for joining us on Remember What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com. 